You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Luke 15. We're going to show it up on the screen, but uh, if you also, if you brought your Bible with you, reading on the NIV or your Bible app, whatever it may be, let's, uh, um, in fact, I thought about kind of just skipping over it and heading into the section that we were going to be taking up this morning, but I I decided to reread the whole thing just to regain the context, and then we'll jump into the second half of the parable this morning. It begins in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, in the Bible, sin and salvation are often explained using the metaphor of being lost and being found. Luke tells us this is the very reason that Jesus came into the world in chapter 19. He came to seek and save the lost. And this seeking and saving theme is seen in three parables in Luke chapter 15. It's often called the parable of lost things. You have a lost sheep, 
you have a lost coin. And then, of course, the parable we're looking at, the parable of the lost son, otherwise known as the prodigal son. Now, our approach to studying this parable began last week by taking a look at the younger son. And this week, we're going to turn our attention to the older son. And then next week, we're going to come back around and do a a deeper dive into the whole parable again. And I'd highly recommend that you watch, that you listen, or that you read last week's message, because we always don't have enough time to revisit all the main points in the following message. And they're very helpful, what I said last week, into really getting the most out of the message today. And so you can watch, you can listen, you can read any sermon on uh, the Church Center app that you just found out about, or gracepsl.org. And if you uh, have a commute and you like to listen to sermons, you can do so on Spotify and iTunes at lowercase gracepsl. All right, there's the advertisement. (laughs) This parable, as we saw last week, is almost always explained in a way that focuses on the departure and the return of the younger son, and therefore we call it the prodigal of the parable son. But as we also found out last week, this title is actually a misnomer. We need to rename it, and here's why. If the main character of the parable was the younger son, then why introduce the older son at all? If the main character is the younger son, it would be simply enough to say a son rebelled against his father, he left home, he squandered his inheritance, he came to his senses, he returned home, and he was restored by his father. No need for the other brother whatsoever. Why the older son then? Well, the older son is actually not just a part of the parable. It turns out he's the main character of the parable. He just doesn't appear until the second act. Now, last week in Act 1, we learned the father's amazing love towards his rebellious younger son who became so destitute in a faraway country that he decided to go home. also learned that his motive for returning home was not sorrow over dishonoring his father, but simply because he had no food. He was starving to death. He was destitute. Worse than that, he couldn't get a job at least not one that was respectable. He was working for a Gentile, feeding that Gentile's pigs with food that he himself had no access to, that he longed for. Now, can you imagine a Jewish man longing for pods fed to pigs owned by a Gentile? He's thinking to himself, it couldn't be worse going home. I don't care what the shame is. I'm home. But it wasn't about the Father. It was about Him. It was self-preservation that turned him around and made him come to himself. In spite of his self-centered motives, in spite of his insincere repentance, when the father saw him at a distance, he ran out to him, he embraced him, he kissed him. And it was that extraordinary love and acceptance that actually caused the younger son's heart to just melt and turned his insincere repentance into sincere repentance. Subsequently, the father calls for a celebration because he's found his son, the fatted calf, is killed. Apparently, the whole village was invited. And instead of doing what everybody thought that the father would do and should do, and that was to cut off his son from his family, to banish him from the village through the kusetsa ceremony, as we learned about last week, the father just does the opposite. He throws a party. He calls for a celebration. He calls for the best robe. 
His. A ring, the family ring, the signet ring, the sandals, all of which were unmistakable signs that he was fully restoring the younger son's standing in the family. It was a powerful, powerful metaphor of God's grace restoring us, justifying us, giving us his own robe of righteousness and making us co-heirs with Christ in the Father's house. It's an amazing metaphor. And that's the end of Act 1. And all of that then is to set up Act 2. Meanwhile, it says in verse 25, while all this celebrating is going on, we don't know for how long, but I imagine the son is returning, the older son is kind of returning from a hard day's work because he's a hard worker, the older son is. And he's coming in from a hard day's work, and all of a sudden, in the distance, he hears like singing. This was odd. He wasn't expecting this. As he gets nearer and nearer to the house, he hears this music and dancing louder, and so he calls one of the hired servants. And he asks him, what's going on? Well, your brother's come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother, it says here, became angry and refused to go in. Now, you would expect at this point in the story that the older brother, when he heard that his younger brother, his own flesh and blood, has come home, that he would just drop everything that he had with him and take off running for the house in joyful anticipation of being reunited with his younger brother. His brother's home, safe and sound. But that's not what we read. We read just the opposite. And that phrase, safe and sound, by the way, is a little bit more than, uh, than what we read in the English there, what we read in English translations. It's, it's from a Greek word which meant more than physically safe and sound, but mentally and emotionally safe and sound. In a single word, wholeness. He has your younger brother back, and he is whole, spirit, soul, and body. Wholeness. The younger brother's not only physically safe and sound, he's been spiritually healed by the father. The spiritual illness that darkened his heart and made him want to leave his father's house has been healed. And so the idea here is that through the father's efforts, the younger son, who was once alienated, has now been restored. Spiritually he was dead, but now he's alive. Sick but healed. Broken but now whole. Lost but now found. Now, the father's gracious welcome of this wayward younger son greatly angers the older son. First of all, he's angry because um, as the firstborn, he had the prerogative of making family decisions with his father. He wasn't involved in this one. He wasn't there. He was out in the fields. And so he's kind of ticked off that this was actually done without notifying him, without seeing how he felt about it. But He's also angry because the younger son, his younger brother, was welcomed home without any restitution. See, in his mind, the younger brother still owed the father one-third of the value of the estate. He squandered it off. He still owes the father that. If he's going to come back home, he needs to bring that with him. In other words, the younger son must work to be reconciled to the father. He must pay to be accepted back into the family. He must earn his forgiveness. In fact, the older son's so angry, he takes the radical step of breaking fellowship with his father. For a son to be present, but refuse to participate in such a banquet like this, 
was a great insult, as great of an insult as it was for the younger son to demand his inheritance before the father died. By not joining in the celebration, the older son dishonored his father as much as the younger son had dishonored his father. But once again in the parable, the father does just the opposite of what a traditional patriarch would have done. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father says what? Off with you then. No. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Just like the shepherd left the flock to find the lost sheep. Just like the woman dropped everything in order to find the lost coin. The father leaves the party to go out to the son. He does not send a servant out to get him. He does not shout from a distance and command his son to come into the house. He goes out to him. And he gently pleads with him to come into the house and join the celebration. Now what is Jesus doing here? Well, He's giving us a portrait of God the Father that up to that time was unheard of. He's showing us the Father's heart towards sinners. Both the younger brother type sinner and the older brother type sinner. God is so holy and righteous that He hates sin, but He's also so compassionate and tender-hearted that He loves the sinner. And even though the younger son rebelled against Him, He runs out to Him, He embraces Him, He brings Him back into the house. And even though the older son rebelled against Him, He goes out with that same heart and He pleads with Him to come back into the house. The younger son responds to the father by melting and repenting. The older son responds by recoiling and resisting. He answered his father, verse 29, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat. Can you hear it in his voice? So I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours doesn't call him any, you know, this son, he's not my brother. Not when my brother comes home. Now this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fatted calf for him. Now, the younger son was so moved with the father's kindness and compassion it led to genuine repentance. The older son was not so moved. Instead, he attacks his brother. And he maligns his father by implying that his father didn't love him enough. Wouldn't even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And that the father loves the younger son too much. You gave him the fatted calf. Furthermore, he insults his father. He doesn't even use his name. You notice that when it says, look, Think about that kind of speech. You know what he was basically saying? Look here, you unappreciative father. All these years I've been slaving. I've never disobeyed your orders. Now in spite of that tremendous disrespect and lack of love, the father graciously pleads with him a second time. My son, the Father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, 
this second half of the parable that we just looked at totally upends the traditional understanding of Christianity. And it does that by forcing us to rethink three things that are central to the Gospel. Who God is, what sin is, and what salvation is. And we've already seen how Jesus causes us to rethink who God is by revealing Him as the Father of compassion. He's the Father who picks up His robe between His legs and runs out to the Son whom He's just seen on the outskirts of town to bring Him back into His house. But He's also the Father who goes out and gently pleads with the hard-hearted Son to come back into the house. The second thing here that Jesus does in this parable is He causes us to rethink what sin is. Now, in the first part of the parable, Jesus offers a traditional view of sin through the younger son who rebels against the father, lives in moral decadence, and ends up in a pig sty. Now, everyone listening to him in that crowd would go, yep, that's a sinner. Yep, he's a sinner, all right. He's lost, definitely lost. But the second part of the parable reveals the same is true about the older son. He's just as lost as the younger son was. See, the younger son rebelled against the father by leaving the father's house. The older son rebelled against the father by refusing to go back into the house. The younger son dishonored the father by saying, give me what's mine. The older son dishonored the father by saying, why didn't you give me what's mine? You never even gave me what? The goat, right? That goat's coming around a few times, isn't it? The younger son said to the father, in essence, I never wanted to serve you. The older son says, I've been slaving for you all these years. In other words, I've been doing what I don't want to do in order to get what I want, the inheritance, just like the younger son. For both sons, the father had become a means to an end. And of course, that's the way some people approach a relationship with God. Sadly, sometimes He is simply a means to an end. Allow me to explain. Most people come to faith through some sort of trial that reveals their need for God's intervention. And within that process of turning to God by God's providence, some of them discover that they actually have a much deeper need, a spiritual need, a need that's much deeper than their current trial. They realize that they're not only a troubled soul in the midst of a trial, but that they're also a guilty sinner before God in need of forgiveness and salvation. And so they hear the gospel of the love of God and how we are reconciled by God through Jesus Christ and they are saved. Now, other people respond differently to this scenario. They turn to Jesus for relief from the trial, but not forgiveness. And if they don't get relief, they say, well, I tried Jesus, but He didn't work for me. Means to an end. On the other hand, if they get some relief, momentarily they're thankful, but they just go on their way to do what? Not to live for Him, but to live for themselves. They might have prayed a prayer, but they're basically still their own Lord and Savior in charge of their own life. They're like the multitude who had no food and are fed by the miraculous loaves and fishes, 
But after the bread is dried up, they quit following Jesus. He was a what? Means to an end. They wanted the bread, but not the bread of life. So just like some people only want relief from the trial, but not Jesus, and just like the people wanted, or the multitude wanted bread, but not Jesus, the brothers wanted the inheritance, but not the Father. And why were the sons so intent on getting the inheritance? Well, because it would allow them to live independently of the Father, and that is the essence of what sin is. One did it by being very bad. The other one did it by being very good. One did it very openly. The other one did it very covertly. But the point is, both sons were estranged from the father's heart. And that's why they both needed to be reconciled by the father. And that's why the father not only runs out to the younger son, the lawbreaker, but he also goes out and pleads with the older son, the what? Law keeper. Both needed the mercy of the Father because both of them were lost. Now at this point, we've got to remind ourselves again of the audience that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to two groups of people, one primarily. He's speaking to the sinners and the tax collectors, but also the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So on one side, you have the immoral on the other side, the moral. On one side, the irreligious. On the other side, the religious. But he is actually speaking to the Pharisees. And what Jesus was saying to them in this parable, that in spite, like the older son, in spite of their morality and their obedience to God's law, they were actually alienated from God. And they were sinners just like the tax collectors were. It's possible to serve the Father as the older son was, and yet be far from him in your heart. Did you hear that? It's possible to obey the father's commands as the older son was, and yet do it for a self-motivated reason. It's possible to outwardly adopt Christianity to regularly come to church, to believe the right things, to be moral, volunteer in ministry, give in the offering, be good to other people, and yet not be a genuine Christian. So what we have here is two sons. One bad by conventional standards, one good, yet both alienated from their father. The only difference is the bad son humbly enters the father's feast and is saved, but the good son does not. The son who spent his inheritance on partying and prostitutes is saved, but the son who is moral and obedient is not saved. He's still lost. Now this really upset the Pharisees' apple cart. Or maybe fig cart would be a better thing to say. I don't know how many apples were there. It was the opposite of everything they had ever been taught or espoused. And it's the opposite of, of what many people understand about Christianity today. Their concept of Christianity should really be called moral anity. In the context of our parable, we might call it elder brother Christianity. It's a religion 
in which obedience to the moral commands of God are made the means of salvation instead of the outcome of salvation. And there are millions of adherents to this kind of religion in the United States. They are gathering in buildings all over this country as I speak. It's a false gospel. But it's widely accepted because it is so similar to the genuine as all counterfeit gospels are. You see, the basis of the elder brother's relationship with his father was his own obedience rather than the father's grace. And because of that, he felt the father owed him and had not delivered. And therefore, he had the right to be angry with his father for showing such mercy to the younger son. Look, if you believe that God ought to bless you and that you ought to have a fairly trouble-free life because you have obeyed Him, because you're a good person, so forth and so on, then Jesus might not be your Savior. He might be your example. He might be your inspiration. But He's probably not your Savior. You may believe in Jesus theologically, but you know what you're doing? Functionally, you're still trusting in your own goodness. And that is often revealed in anger when things don't go the way they should. Why didn't God do what He should have? Or why did that person get blessed so much? I know what they're like. It's salvation through obedience rather than obedience through salvation. Now, no doubt, genuine faith produces obedience. If there is no obedience, desire to be obedient, if there's no feeling bad because you've dishonored God in your life, then you're not saved. You're just not saved. There's got to be something there. Christianity is not about having a good track record. It's about when we fail, we know that it dishonors God and we turn to Him in repentance and we do that every day. For every little attitude, every little thing, every little word we speak that's wrong, every action, whatever it may be, we turn to Him and we say, Father, forgive me. Why? There's something in us that wants to please the Father. It's fundamental to salvation because Jesus can't show up in somebody's life and not change them. It's impossible for the Son of God to reside in us and the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and not have a love for the Father. A genuine faith produces obedience, but obedience does not produce a genuine faith. Jesus drives home the whole point when the parable ends and the elder son is not going into the father's house. And why doesn't he go in? Do you know he tells us himself why he will not go in? He says, why? I've never disobeyed you. That's why he's not going in. I've never disobeyed you. Why does he reject the father? What keeps him out of the father's house? It's not his badness. It is his... Ah, you're tracking. I love that. What keeps him out of the Father's house? It's not his disobedience, but his pride in his obedience, which actually blinds him from seeing that he's just like his younger brother in desperate need of the Father's mercy. And therefore, sin must be more than just being bad because the elder brother was essentially good. Sin is more than being bad or disobedience. It's wanting to be in control of your own life. 
to determine, independent of God, what is right and wrong for you. What is good and evil for you. Essentially to be out from underneath of the Father's authority. You know, think about Adam for a moment. His sin was not that he just disobeyed. He ate from the the tree that God said don't eat from. His sin was that he wanted to control his own life. Why did he want to eat from that tree? Because he wanted to call his own shots. He wanted to control his own life. He wanted to be free to decide what tree he will eat from and will not eat from. He wanted autonomy. So you see, sin is not just breaking the rule, don't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. It's also the desire to make your own rules and to be free of God's authority. To say, I know better than God does in this area or this situation. Now, Isaiah said it like this, we like sheep have all gone astray. Each one of us has gone our own way. The essence of sin is right there. Independence from God. So three takeaways from this that I think can help us grow and experience more of God's transforming grace. First of all, if we want to be Christ's disciples and truly change, we have to see that behind every sin is the desire to control our lives. To live by our own rules. To be our own Lord. We're just like Adam. We want to be free from God's standards. And we enthrone our own feelings, our own ideas, our own beliefs instead of believing God's Word and what He says. Our, 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 our model should be, not my will, but thy will be done. Somebody else said that somewhere along the line. I think in the Bible, right? Secondly, if we really want to change, we need to go further than repenting of a particular sin. We need to repent for the sin beneath that sin. What is that? The desire to control our own lives, to live by our own rules, to be our own Lord, which in essence is what? Pride. It's not just, Lord, forgive me for this. Go one step lower and Lord, forgive me for what caused that in my heart because Jesus said, hey, every sin comes out of the heart. It's not just a matter of dealing with the action or the word said, but the heart motivation behind it. The the, the gospel not only calls us to repent from the action, it calls us to repent from the attitude that caused the action. Thirdly, if we really want to grow, we repent not only for the wrong and wrong reasons behind the wrong, we even repent of the wrong reasons for doing right. Now you know you're growing. Because that is exactly what this parable teaches us. That's That's what the older brother needed to do. He did right. He did good. He didn't do like the younger brother did. He stayed on the farm. He served the father. But with a wrong heart. His heart was far from him. When the father came out and said, son, you are always with me and everything I, I have is here. It should have melted him. I mean, when I read that last week, I almost couldn't read beyond that point because it's such a, a gracious sentence from the father. Son, everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. Everything. I think the older son should have said in turn, father, all these years, I've never really understood your heart. All these years I have obeyed, but not for you. Not because I delighted in you, but because I delighted in me. 
I repent. Forgive me. All I want now is you and your will for me. That's all I want in my life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that moment in prayer and worship? God, all I want is what you want for me. That's true Christianity. And that's really important to understand for many reasons, not the least of which is that many, many younger brothers out there really don't want much to do with Christianity because they think elder brother Christianity is true Christianity. Why? Why do they think that? Well, <laughs> I hate to break it on you, <laughs> but all of us are sometimes elder brother-ish. The longer you've been a Christian, maybe the more. We'll come back to that next week if, if God allows. But let's, let's kind of do a summary here. So what Jesus does here is He reforces us to think about three things that are essential to the Gospel. Who God is, what sin is, and lastly, what salvation is. We won't spend as much time on this, but just let me give you one, one thought about it. To elder brothers, the world is divided into good people and bad people. When it comes to the kingdom of God, the, the good people are in and the bad people are... All right, bad people are out. Now, to the contrary, Jesus said, neither one of them are in. That's what He's saying in this parable, isn't He? Neither one of them are in. Both the good people and the bad people are out. And that's why the Gospel, when it is truly preached and taught and shared, is just as offensive to religious people and good people as it is to irreligious people and bad people. It's offensive because it says what? The way you thought in isn't the way in. Romans 1, 2, and 3 teaches exactly that. Romans 1, the bad people are out. Romans 2, the good people are out. Romans 3, there is no difference. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory or the standard of God's righteousness. Jesus said neither the good people or the bad people are in. Well, then the question then, Jesus, who can be saved? And He tells us, actually in the kind of his inaugural sermon, when he, the first time he really kind of sets down and says, here's what my kingdom is like. Starts with the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. And the first thing he says is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Not poor materially. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? There's two Greek words that are translated poor into the English word poor. The first one means poor with meager resources. It was used of that, uh, the widow woman with the two copper coins, right? That, and, she, and one day Jesus and the disciples were watching the Pharisees dump their coins in the coffer and trying to make as much noise as possible. And everyone's going, whoo, what a great giver. What a great giver that Pharisee A, B, and C, and D was. And, and then this little woman, old woman walks up and all she has is two copper coins and she drops them in and Jesus said, now that's giving. Because <laughs> it's what? It's all she had, right? Now, so that was, that, that's poor with meager resources. The widow had two copper coins that she brings to God. In Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't use this word. He uses the second word for poor. It doesn't mean poor with meager resources. It means poor with zero resources. Zero resources. 
It describes a person who of themselves brings nothing, not even two coins, brings nothing of their own goodness or their own merit to God, who instead throws themselves on the mercy of God, who humbles themselves before the throne of God and says to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So in the context of the parable, it's not the good are in, the bad are out. It's the humble and believing are in, the proud and unbelieving are out. In this parable, Jesus forces us to rethink three things that are central to the gospel. First, who God is. He's a father who goes out to embrace younger and elder brothers alike. Secondly, what sin is. Not only disobedience, but obedience for the wrong reasons. And lastly, what salvation is. It's not something you can earn. Make me like your hired servant. It's not something you can deserve. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Salvation is a free gift of the Father's mercy. Salvation is not only being forgiven sin, it's the miraculous transformation of heart that results in a desire to humble oneself and let the Father put His arms around you, put His robe upon you, and bring you into His house to welcome you in to His house. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. Speaking of heaven, He says to His disciples, He says, my Father's house, same as the parable. My Father's house, in it there are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Thomas said, you're going, but we don't know where you're going, Lord, so how can we know the way to the Father's house? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. You know, last week at the end of the message, I, I, uh, I said to all the younger brothers out there, come home to the Father's house. His arms are open wide. He longs to embrace you again. This week I say to all the older brothers, the older sons, come home to the Father's heart. He longs for you to be near to Him. But you can only come near to Him by grace. By receiving it, that nearness as a gift given to you through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. For both the younger brother and the older brother, He's the way into the Father's heart. He's also the way to closeness to the Father's heart. Closeness. Let's make a confession. Different one this morning. Let's all do it together too. I'm coming home to the Father's heart where I belong. In the Father's arms where I belong. With the Father's robe. With the ring and the sandals. Full sonship. By grace through Jesus Christ. I believe He died on a cross for my sin. 
and that He rose from the dead to make me right with God, to bring me home to the Father. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the way to the Father. He is my way to the Father. Amen. Let's all stand. Glad to worship with you this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we'd uh, certainly like you to take the opportunity to come up and pray with one of our prayer team. We'll be up here in just a moment. If you have the opportunity to hang around for a while and fellowship, invite you to do so. If you got to go, safe travels. We'll see you next week for uh, lesson three on the parable of the sons. God bless.